All right, another episode with my man Charles. Now, this is the recap that we are going to get into the habit of doing. I particularly enjoy talking with Charles, not only because he is the sponsor of this podcast or video cast, but because he is genuinely interested in all of these conversations that we're having. He's like my biggest fan, we could say. <laughs> and I absolutely love just fanning my ego by talking to him and hearing what he has to say, what he thought of the episodes in this season. We're making it a routine thing. So at the end of the season, he's going to come on and he's going to express his thoughts on what we talked about over the season. And we're going to give it like, it's going to be like the highlight reel, you could say. So if you didn't see every episode from this season, then we are going to be discussing the different things that stuck out during the season. Now, I think I've done enough talking for this intro section. Let's just go ahead and get into it with Charles, see what he has to say. Are you a robot? I had one with Merv, Mervay just yesterday where it was like, uh, I was laughing because it was a little clunky, but fuck, I could have talked to her for hours, man. It was like right up my alley. And, and I asked her, well, you'll see. I asked her when we actually uh, released that episode, but she wrote all about how... Basically, like, you know, did you read her Medium post about how in the pandemic we can't let, like, ourselves be swindled by the government and they take away all our liberties in the name of, um, in the name of, like, protection? And so I was like, well, so she, she put that, right? And I asked her, you know, like, considering China has gotten rid of the virus and they're basically back to normal. Yeah. Like, and she wrote that article in April when the pandemic was not, we did not realize what it was going to be. Really. I think a lot of us were still like, oh, okay, like a few week vacation, no worries. We'll be back to normal in no time. And so I asked her like, don't you think it's almost better if we do this draconian, like just fucking take all this information, make sure that nobody goes where they shouldn't go and take all these measures so we can eradicate the pandemic like China did rather than do this light thing that we've been doing. In hindsight, can't we see that it's it's actually been better for China? Yeah. So, but that's a, that's a really tough question. This is why I love doing this, man, because that question, I'm like not sure how I feel about that. Like the answer to that is is a little bit scary in my mind. It's like, yeah, I mean, I guess if you want to eradicate the pandemic. I mean, I think I think that question is the que- not just the question of the year, but the question of the century. Um, yeah. Which is, you know, we, you know, we, we enjoy democratic privileges here and freedom of the individual. But I think we've we've we're going through well we've been through like five years of 
what that actually means in reality. <laughs> we've had um, you know, we've had a, a a a a lot of divisiveness. You know, regardless of what side of the um, presidential debate you're on, you know, you've, you've had a, a, the most divisive time in U.S. history of the last five years, and as a direct result of you know uh, the tyranny of the minority, which it is, isn't it? It's it's not. 51% of the people, it's 51% of the, those who vote. And Brexit, yeah. great example, 502 or whatever it was. So uh, a minority of people have taken the, the country in a different direction. Um, and then we've got the pandemic, which is, you know, the, what's very close to me is that when a government rules, it rules only by um, the virtue of the people um, accepting what the government said. And I think that's such on a thin edge where, you know, and Boris Johnson said here, um, you know, you've got to stay at home and closing churches. I mean, that's kind of like, wow, that's, 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 that's hard to imagine that, 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 um, you know, that, that we, we will hear that from a British prime minister. And, and I think what we've seen is I think, you know, a lot of people have, have followed that. Some people haven't, um, you know, I thought, so even a church in London kind of opened this week and did a baptism or something and police came and stopped oh, really? people going in and, you know, thankfully it didn't wow. get ugly, but it's like, imagine like a police stopping people going into a church. That is only something you imagine of like a failed state doing. Um, and, um, and you're right, we, you know, we're going to go through a much worse pandemic than China, um, or Taiwan, you know, it's, a, it's a, again a, a democracy, but a different type of democracy where it's much more, um, you know, one party uh, for a long time, lots very strong party, very strong political um, uh, process. So, um, and I think you know we, we're going to have to wrestle with this, and, and I, I've, I. I think it's a really uh, it's a really tough tough question, and I, and I know a lot of people do wonder, looking at China, whether that um, an authoritative um, system is better. Uh, and um, I think I think it's one thing not so easy to say it's not better. I, mean, I know there's human rights abuses, and I know there's a lot of dark side yeah. to it. But if you could, if if it only it could be possible to achieve all that China achieves without the abuses. Then that could be as equally attractive as as democracy, surely. Um, well, yeah, that's a controversial I, start to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that's how we're going to do it. This is season one wrapping up. That's how we do it now. <laughs> well, you know, there's so many avenues that we can go down with this, and I think it's such a deep topic to look into. It really is a bit like, like you say, yes. If we can have all the good without the bad, but I I really wonder if that's possible. And the trade-offs you see, it's like, okay, I have my civil liberties living in, in Europe and, or in the US or um, the, the Western world, we could say. But I also have a lot of people that get to go out in the street and protest and then spread the virus everywhere. And they protest for whatever they want. Uh, and and who am I to say what they should and shouldn't protest for? Right? Like, mm-hmm. I don't care. They should, I feel like we should have that liberty to go against what the state is saying or what the government says. But then 
you look at how how China's doing it and you don't get those rights to go out into the street and you don't really have that ability to show this form of dissent, but you also aren't getting the massive spread of a virus because you have huge lockdowns Mm -hmm. and you get contact tracing to the maximum. You have to be as open as one can be when it comes to showing what you've been doing, who you've been doing it with. There's no privacy, right? So the trade-offs are really interesting here because of this this privacy talk and then the the way that um, the benefits that you get from that, like the privacy or non-privacy. And one thing that I think was super interesting that Merve was saying to me, and she's going to be the first episode next season. She was talking about how for her, it's all about trust. And if we can trust that the government is going to take all of this information and use all of this information, like as let's imagine that the US government just starts to implement some of these contact tracing or they get rid of our privacy for the time being to eradicate the pandemic, right? But can we trust that after the pandemic is over, they're going to say, okay, cool, now it's done. Let's go back and stop taking all of this data and stop taking all of this information. And really, when you look at the track record of the government's once they have that information and once they have they're privy to that secret sauce we could say they don't give it up so easily and so that was something that she that was a point that she brought up and i really thought yeah that's that's true i i don't think that in any way they would take that information and then say okay now we're finished with it we'll give it back yeah. and so that's where you lose the trust yeah i think um I think it's so true. I think also, like, the, the, the most bizarre thing about this year, about 2020, has been actually how little the tech industry have kind of done. Um, and I know there's, like, you know, Google and um, Apple have done their contact tracing thing. Um, but But really, like, given the resources those firms have, um, it just... It just is. It seems that there's been we've missed a trick. And mm. when I think about when I think about industries, you know, um, there seems to be uh, there's like an old tech industry and there's a new tech industry. And the old tech industry is like the infrastructure um, people, like the, the telecommunications networks, um, mm. and you know, they was really and, and you know the old tech industry in terms of finance would be like banks, old banks versus sort of fintechs. Um, what strikes me is that the it's the old tech industries that actually have a huge amount of power and ability to influence how things, but they they just know not to go there. They they draw a, 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 a line, and um, you know it's it's absolutely the case that a, a cell phone network provider they know exactly where I am, where I go, where where I've been for the last however many years I've been with that provider, they've got all of that data. Um, surely that would be 
I, I just don't believe, and I'm, I'm sure the people listening who say there's, it's, there's technical challenges to why we couldn't use that data. But I think what I would have been happy to have seen, you know, cell phone companies um, say, you know, we've got this data. You all know we've got this data. There's no secret we've got this data. <laughs> and we're going to use this data to try and figure out if there might be data-driven solutions to the pandemic. And you know, maybe they they would have got nowhere, but I would have I would have appreciated perhaps um, uh, some some more uh, some more from them. Um, and I think the, you know, the companies like Facebook ahead. and Google and um, Apple and others, I'm sure they could have done. And um, yeah, this is probably not a conversation for this podcast, but maybe for somebody who's researched it better. But I I've read about how you know there's there's kind of design choices in how that app um, and that contact tracing technology has been has been built to make it just very hard for a track and trace program to actually be effective. And they've kind of thrown kind of real obstacles in the road of a public health service. And, and so we're in this crazy place, going back to democracy, we're in this crazy place where we live in a democracy here in the West. We criticise China for being undemocratic, but actually there's a huge amount of choice that's made on our behalf by undemocratic institutions like Google, Facebook, and Apple. And their choices um, affect our lives and, and may even may even kill us. So um, yeah, I think I think this whole relationship between the power of the state, the power of tech, um, well, you're going to start the next season with that, with Mervy. Yeah. So um, let's talk about this season. Let's talk about season one. Let's do a recap. But um, let's, All right. let's go back to There's just one. so much juicy stuff in that that we could get into. I mean, it's it's absolutely incredible. And there's, uh, it's such a, like you said, it is the question of the last five years, potentially the question of the decade. Uh, question of the century. Question of the century. There you go. Throwing out real big words. Yeah. We're twenty years. We're twenty years in now. I think we can, we can make claims for what the century is going to look like. But I think that's the question for the century. You know, we the twentieth century was the triumph of of uh, capitalism, the triumph of the West, the triumph of liberal democracy, the end of history, as um, as we all thought it might have been growing up. And I think this century we have to ask a big question again. Um, uh, what is the relationship between tech and the state? And um, and, and I think you know the choices we make in maybe the next ten years will shape the rest of this uh, this hundreds. Yeah, one thing that is is really interesting that you see in some of these like open source communities in tech, and they actually they call for there's a need for it is what they call the benevolent dictator. Somebody has to lead and somebody has to make the decisions and someone has to say, we're going this way, but they have to be benevolent. It mm. can't be for like this, um, all for me, none for you. And I don't know why I was bringing that up, but I just, uh, it came to mind when we're talking about this, <laughs> this idea of the connection between between tech and state now it's not no longer church and state it's tech and state <laughs> and, okay. um, and uh, just the last thing before we jump to this season that i was going to mention also is that merve said to me after we stopped recording when i was talking to her she said why aren't we having you know all there's all this data that's being thrown around then you know we're really looking hard at people's personal data 
and we're making money off of that. But why aren't there data sources and why aren't there companies that are very gung-ho about collecting data on who is the biggest contributor to the senators or the government agencies who is like she she made this point of all of these data sources that we aren't collecting that would make our understanding of what is happening behind closed doors a lot more transparent yeah so let's get into season one <laughs> i stumped uh, just, you there didn't i yeah no I, I i just think i was thinking as you're saying that the person we need to invite to speak is daniel um home at um uh Satalia. um and um he he's got a really interesting take on all of this and it's what's really interesting is it would definitely appeal to the to the techies listening it's a he runs a decentralized organization where essentially his company, or I think he'll probably um, recoil at the word company, but his organization, Satalia, is kind of run by a blockchain. So they've basically designed a machine to run the, the, the organization for them. And mm -hmm. so that all of those sorts of questions are neutralized. And the, and the question of like, how does something get funded? You know, I think in his worldview, um, you know, those questions could fall away. Um, so we we got to get him into a future episode. Um, there we go. So well, let's talk about this this season. Yeah. What do you think? So as we start to be like tech in the state, let's start with Seb. Um, and yeah. um, he uh, perfect segue. Yeah. So you had a chat with him about effect recognition, emotional emotional detection, and you know what. Uh, yeah, what, what did you, what, what most surprised you by that conversation that you had? And the main highlight for me is this idea of how once we start down that road, and again, this goes back to it's, it's so funny, it goes back to China, right? China's already doing it, they're already looking and surveilling uh, the population heavily. And I just thought about how paranoid I would be if I knew that there was cameras on me looking at if I was happy or if I was doing things like, and I looked suspicious, I already used to get paranoid like that when I, there was no cameras on me. But now I, if I knew that there was cameras on me, I would act in a way that was very much not natural. Mm -hmm. And so then it would just be more cause mm -hmm. to flag me. You know, like if I knew that I'm being judged and being recorded and potentially like being looked at as a terrorist because of the ways that I'm walking or the way that I, my like face is acting or my shifty eyes, all of this being taken into account, that's not going to put me at ease at all. I'm going to be more nervous and therefore exhibit more of these characteristics yeah. so that was the main thing that i i came out of it with just like wow how can how can we consider this to be a good system when i know for myself that i would just be more of a sketchy person if that happened yeah what was what was really great listening to the whole season is how you know even though each episode was was on a different topic there were these kind of common threads that ran through and so 
you know, this question of facial recognition, um, you know, obviously that, you know, Emily's episode at the beginning was like directly on that, but then you got into it again with Seb, but also with 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 Dr. Rob Wortham. Um, I think that exact point was made, whereas, you know, if, if you, if Rob said, if, if he was in the back of a pub having a beer with you, um, you know, he would probably act differently. He moderated his behaviour because he knew he was on camera like we are now uh, being recorded yeah. because he knew that people would be picking on his words, you know, uh, 10 years to come, potentially. And um, I think that's so true. You know, we the reality is we do live in a surveillance state in the West, um, at least here in the UK. I think it's not quite surveilled in Germany where you are, but um, in the UK there's cameras everywhere. Uh, mm-hmm. And... Um, it's uh, and so the 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 infrastructure is there. How much of that is actually used to look at um, individuals? But I think looking at Seb uh, uh, Seb's episode and then doing some more research afterwards, I think what was really interesting he touched on gate um, detection. Um, so it's not just like looking at people's face and saying, "Oh, that's Demetrius, that's Charles, yeah. that's Emily." Um, that's Harriet, um, but it's also looking at the way you know you may see, you may see like a shadowy figure or silhouette, and seeing just by how they walk. They walk. Oh, that's yeah, that's Demetrius. Yeah, I can tell. <laughs> yeah, um, and it might not even be a question of identifying positively the individual by saying, "Oh, yeah, we know that's Demetrius Brinkman. We can I- identify him." But maybe it's a question of right. That's you know subjects. You know three four six five two. And we don't know the identity of that person, but we've seen the same gate at that shopping centre at the airport. Oh, and now we've seen it at the airport. Now we can identify him or her. So it's about the detective game, I think, that some um, organisations or states can play, trying to sort of piece together this this data jigsaw. Um, and um, it took me back to when I was at Deutsche Bank. We were... Um, before that, I was running a data analytics company, but it was really at Deutsche Bank that I was playing with um, technology, uh, um, applied technology solutions from other fintechs. And I can't remember the name of the firm, and um, I'll, um, it's really uh, going to bug me now, but there was a company that we were looking at that had a um, an authentication solution um, that looked at the um, accelerometer data from a mobile phone and so basically how you typed in your passcode on your phone or how you held your phone was like a unique fingerprint to you as an individual. Um, and so, you know, I thought that was just, you know, blew my mind. But um, one, of the, uh, one of the things that um, I remember talking to them about was how when they authenticated using your sort of mobile phone, your gyro data, um, they introduced a deliberate delay into the authentication process. So you can say, you'd say like, hold your phone. And it actually took like, you know, half a second for them to go, yeah, that's you. But they but they realized that people didn't believe that there was any authentication going on because it was too quick. Okay. So they introduced a delay with some whizzy graphics on the screen to make it look like something really complicated was going on and some like funky data science. And okay, now you're through. But all of that was just circus. Um, it, uh, it was it was It was so powerful and um so yeah that's actually so much that's funny you bring that up because in the in the community i remember seeing something about someone asking how can i make my chat bot that i'm creating i want to make it faster right and then one person came and said well actually what 
the studies have found is that people don't like to know that they're talking to a chatbot. Mm. And so if you make the answer instantaneous, then you're going to give off and people will know automatically that, hey, this is this is not a real human. So they said, so actually, you probably don't have to optimize for this and you can just put the graphic on the screen, the little whizzy thing, as you called it, and yeah. made it, make it seem like some human is typing and then give your answer at whatever pace you can. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that juxtaposed with what uh, Seb was saying, which another thing that I thought was absolutely fascinating from our conversation was how in his paper, he spoke about when humans are given answers from machines or from a machine learning algorithm, they are much more likely to accept it as true. Mm. And it is not true. Like we both know that if our fate is being left up to some algorithms, I'm going to start praying now because (laughs) (laughs) that is not a good sign, man. Like the algorithms are so faulty still as much as we like to say like oh yeah you know the machine learning has come such a long way ai has come a long way which it has and it's doing amazing things but there are still so many holes in so many algorithms and so many anomalies that we just cannot predict for so when you have what is called in a way, or someone said it, I can't remember who said it on one of these episodes. It's this high stakes machine learning where you're deciding if somebody gets a job or you're deciding if somebody goes to jail or for how long they go to jail. Yeah. This kind of stuff is very high stakes. And I think there was a step episode. Yeah. So when you're looking at, like just knowing that humans are much more apt to side with the machine when it tells it something, that's a scary thought too. Yeah, And that really is cause for, hey, we should probably be regulating this a lot more than we are. Because yeah. just our human nature is to say, oh yeah, well, uh, the machine says, you know, this person should get 20 years in jail. Then let's give them 20. Because you know, the machine just did all the work and they know a lot more things than I could ever know, right? Like we just give over our power to the the algorithm and that's a scary thought. Yeah. And that and that's um and that was such an important point you made there is that you know we we with our conditioning is that in a sort of pre-AI world is that you know you type you, you give the machine the data, you give it enough compute power. And it, you know, it, it figures out the answer. It might you might have to wait for the answer in the old days, you know, to kind of, you know, query the database and go and make a cup of tea and come back and get the printout. But uh, you always get the right answer from the machine. And so I think you know that's how we think about these things. Is you know they are, you know, mechanical, but they 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 give you you know the the precise answer, like a calculator would. And um, and that's just so not true of machine learning. It's you know yeah. what, what's actually going on is it's a it's a you know. The machine is saying, "Oh, it's yeah, ninety-two point five percent a dog." Um, but then, once that goes into the kind of the, the next step of the kind of communication and the interface and the downward flow of the of the business process that happens, it's no, that is a dog. It's now gone from ninety-two point whatever percent to a hundred percent. And so, yeah. yeah, when it's when it's um, you know when it's the machine, I think we've got to re- remember that when we use this 
when we talk about these things, when a machine is making parole decisions, it's not making a parole decision. It's just saying it's doing some fancy maths and it's doing some statistics and it's giving a probabilistic answer. And then we have to then decide, is that 92.5% chance of reoffending? are we going to, you know, are we going to make the decision based on that probability uh, that is based on the data and all the biases in the data and all the all the design flaws we've made, are we going to then impact someone's life? Um, and you, you guys got into the conversation about the the um, the the mutant algorithm in the UK uh, around exam results, as our prime yeah. minister called it, the mutant algorithm, which was just a lovely story from the summer. Um, <laughs> um, Another one on top of so many lovely ones that we've yeah, had. Not so lovely for the for the kids that got affected. We we I've been um I've been talking to the team about um actually getting getting somebody onto the show who has been affected by this. There's a there's a group called Teens in AI, which is, you know, what it says, it's like, you know, teenagers who are doing AI. And um we need to get somebody uh from that group onto the show to kind of talk about actually how that algorithm affected them and how they felt towards it and you know what the rest of the AI industry should learn. Um, but I think the real question from that, again, coming back to kind of government and AI, was, you know, you've got the 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 situation now where you know, these decisions are are having political impact. You know, they're making decisions in terms of parole or in terms of exam results or next year who gets the vaccine. <laughs> you know, who's going to decide that? That's going to be an algorithm. And um, if the politicians, you know, brush off the problem as being, oh, it was just a an algorithm that went mutants. I mean, it's it's so damaging to trust having the British Prime Minister say that because it wasn't the algorithm. It was it was a very, very poor design process, um, a very poor governance around that design process. And to kind of imply that an algorithm can go mutant, I think, is, has ramifications for lots and lots of other use cases. So, um, And that's something that we, we also address, you know, like it's ask for forgiveness. You know, we just, oh, we let whatever out into the wild. And then when we see that shit hits the fan, okay, oops, our fault. Yeah, we'll roll that back, right? Instead of, like you said, it's it's horrible for trust because if we know that that's the way that they're doing things, what's the next thing that they're going to throw out into the wild and then have a whole another calamity around? Yeah. So... That is a, it's a very interesting one to think about. Like, and it goes back to this, what's the transparency around how these algorithms get put into play? And how gung-ho are we about putting algorithms into the wild when we don't really know the full ramifications of that? Exactly. So and that's why we really do need governments and, and up that. But that that makes me think of the conversation with Megan, which um, I think for me was was maybe my favorite of, of the whole season because um, because I'm a lawyer by training, and so okay. and, and I'm somebody who loves language and I love tech, and you know it was it was three things I love in one conversation, and she brought just such a amazing enthusiasm uh, to to the show as well. Um, uh, I I, you know, I could have. Uh, the hour just kind of went by so quickly. Um, but um, 
I think it's that it's that again that choice between that she was pointing at in in terms of you know, do you want language to be precise like a like programming languages are, and therefore get certain outcomes, or do you want something a little bit more messy like like natural human languages, and leave it to you know a, 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 an institution to kind of unpack that complexity, and I just thought that was so fascinating, the two of you talking about language and. And uh, and its interplay, and you know, to me, machine learning is you know it it is it's fancy maths and it's um, it's probabilistic, and so it's much more like the kind of imprecise. You know, if we could find a way of kind of taking that imprecision that that, that machine learning gives us, um, but then re-encoding that into something that's more certain, like a programming language. You know, it's it's the, it's the, it's the relationship between those two things which is so key. I think. One of the things I saw, I mean, um, it was the most recent episode, um, the conversation with Megan, but, you know, I think uh, some of the comments I read was, you know, what's this going to do with AI ethics? But um, I think actually a a huge amount, and it's just a shame maybe you guys didn't quite get into that in the conversation, but the language that you guys, uh, that... that, um, that engineers use um, has such a big impact on the outcome. And I think this is so salient um, where it comes to the design of these systems is that, you know, we, the, um, you, you know, we, we, we may not be able to see the consequences now of, of those sort of choices in terms of framework or protocol that we're using uh, to design machine learning solutions, but uh, the effects might be very pronounced 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line. Yeah. Um, and so it's, uh, you know, she's obviously looking at law and, and the impact of sort of legal language 20, 30, 40, 100 years later. I, I think someone is going to be doing her job 100 years from now going, oh, wow, they used Python back in the 2010s. Like, you know, did they realize that these would be the outcomes as a result of that, um, as opposed to this other thing, which... Which brings up a big point on how she was talking about how there are languages that are trying to be, well, that are created now specifically for the legal framework. And you have these coding languages that are for, they're very pinpoint and they do one thing very well, which is the legal speak, as she was talking about. And that's a fascinating point. I think you bring up that the ramifications that a certain language has on the design process. Yeah. And I also think that you you boiled it down nicely. I can't remember your exact words, but it's... Uh, what did you say just at the beginning when you introduced this episode where we're looking at the poetic way of speaking, which has yeah. a lot of different imp- interpretations, or you have the very clear... No offense to any engineers, but the engineering way of speaking, which is it, there's no room for interpretation, right? Uh, it's yeah. black and white. And yeah. There's no gray zone. Yeah. So that is, uh, and as Megan put, you need both. There are, she was talking about how there are some of these cases where it can be just yes or no. And a certain percent of a case might be all of that yes or no. And then there is a lot of the case that needs to be interpreted. And it needs that, uh, that poeticness to it so that you can walk the line and 
you can have different interpretations. Yeah. So that was a great one. Yeah, I loved talking with Megan. Sorry, I didn't get into too much AI ethics for you that's next okay. time. That's why, we got this, that's why we got this recap, but I don't think you needed to. I thought it was just, you know, anyone who's interested in in AI, I think, would, would have found that just such a, a fascinating niche to kind of get into. But talking about language and black and white, uh, yeah, the conversation with, with Lewis was, I, for me, that was when this season really came alive. And, um, uh, you know, I just love, uh, I, I've got, I'm just so grateful i think that i've been involved in this uh in the show in this way so i i met uh lewis um many many months ago um when i was uh i was sort of like many people kind of like you know receiving emails to different events or different webinars and i saw this webinar about uh, racist chatbots and i thought oh that that's that sounds really interesting but it was put on by a group in um in uh, I think they're called the Conversational AI Project. We'll have to give them a shout out in the in the show notes. Um, and they're based in in uh, east coast of Canada, I think. And um, so it was it was their evening, <laughs> which is like my middle of the night, early morning. Um, and so I was You're pretty tired, and man. I just was up for like sitting in my chair, drinking a, a cocoa, and like watching the uh, watching the show. And um, and uh, I, what was really interesting was that they said okay we're going to talk about you know racism in design and um and what we're going to do is we're going to break out into little groups now um so you're going to get this is an interactive session you'll get a chance to talk and i'm sort of sitting here and i'm, I'm not quite in my dressing gown but i'm like you know pretty pretty close to getting to bed after after i'm done and um and then suddenly the next thing i know i'm i'm in a one-to-one with uh, with lewis and um and i i very nearly kind of hit right end meeting that I'm going to go to bed because it was like midnight and uh, he he appeared before I had a chance to push the button I was like hey <laughs> hey dude and we had a little chat together and um it we had such a you know suddenly realized that you know we had such a huge amount in common very different experiences uh working in the tech industry and you know I stayed for the full two hours of that uh, webinar and I loved every second of it and then invited him onto the show um and it was great um, to talk to yeah, you guys looked like you had a lot of fun as well in that conversation. Yeah. Um, but a tough, yeah, he, a well, tough issue to get into, I think. Mm. I mean, he's a fellow musician, so obviously very easy to talk to. And that's been he, a theme. That's been a theme throughout. You've had quite a few musicians. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's great. Uh, that's why I have my guitar here as like my badge of honor, and so people know that I play music, and it's easy conversation starter puts them at ease. I think uh, they're not expecting the hardball questions from the long haired <laughs> guitarist, <laughs> but, but man, with Lewis, it was great. There was, there is a lot that he got into that. I was really like, it, first of all, the, the main thing, well, the first thing that jumped out at me was that chatbots have a design element. And I did not even think about that. This has nothing to do with AI ethics or governance or any of that. But for me, the idea of chatbots having a design element to them was him as a designer, he brought that into my worldview. And then him showing me and telling me about what is going on with how he has to what we call code switch, mm. right? He changes 
his whole personality so that the chatbot or the uh, it was it's actually voice recognition. I think chatbot would be classified as something else, but it, the voice recognition software wouldn't understand him unless he spoke in a different with a different tonality, a different personality, and that is something fascinating. And it's funny that he just randomly stumbled upon that, and then he started doing it to see if the if whatever the Siri or the, I think it was Bixby would understand him more. And then he said, wait a minute, asked his wife, will you try it now? What's going on? Is it just me? And so he wrote a great paper on this too, mm. that we can link to in the show notes. If anybody wants to read that whole paper, but really that is something that you mentioned to me before. And I was fascinated with the the webinar that you spoke of and then also fascinated by the fact that it makes complete sense there is no the, there's no dialect for this what uh, you have a special word for it but it's like african american vernacular uh, dialect what is it uh, african american vernacular english there it is yeah and you anyone listening at home can try it, you know, ask Siri or ask your, say like, okay, Google and speak like a rap song and see if Siri understands you. Yeah. I mean, it's very interesting to think that they have to completely, they like, as in the people who are affected by this. And it's, it's not only, I think it's not only African-Americans because you also have a large segment of the population in the U.S. being uh, Mexican-American or Latino, and they don't speak in the typical white Caucasian English either. So it's very fascinating to think about how that is, is affecting them and why we don't have specific algorithms or NLP for that. But we do have it for Poland, which is a smaller population segment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I, I and talking about code switching and you know uh, what what that must be like. I mean, you mentioned earlier, like if you knew a camera was watching you, you would change your behavior in public potentially, and you'd be mm. on edge. I mean, that might be the closest thing you or I could get to. Uh, Lewis's experience, um, and you know that fills fills us with kind of you know oh, that's creepy. There's no way that should be allowed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you know this is his everyday experiencing experience talking to a piece of technology he bought on Amazon, like you and I have done, um, and um, you know that's just not okay. Um, mm. And it, you know, it, it, we've got to fix that as a tech industry. And I think you know, if hopefully people listening to this, uh, you know, in those roles will realize that you know, yes, you might want to you know expand your market reach and you know localize your your products to um, to, to countries like you know Poland or, or or France or wherever. And you know, but you're doing that because you want commercial reach. First, you've got to make sure that your product is inclusive. Uh, for everyone in your home market. And I think, you know, it's just unacceptable that we're in a situation where, you know, US-based technology companies are not are not making their products inclusive in 2020. Um, yeah. 
And, you know, it's something really interesting too, uh, how he was talking about this inclusivity and, and how you spoke about this to me before too, the, the way that the tech industry is doing this or the way that they think that they're doing this is by getting Samuel L. Jackson to be the voice of your Siri, right? Or you get some uh, predominant figure in that culture to be your Siri voice, but that still does not address the problem that Siri or Samuel L. cannot understand you. So the end, I mean, I look at it like... How happy would the community be at large uh, if you did have uh, voice recognition software that would understand all of the nuances and all of these things that you speak? If you could not code switch and you could just speak to it like you spoke to your friends and it would pick up things, yeah, then that would make for a killer product. And I'm sure it would get a lot of fame and so there's a lot of things that we we talked about and how the other thing that was for me really important and interesting was his his new product and when i say his lewis's new product that he is launching that is looking at the sentiment of the workplace speak and how people are talking there and and obviously, my mind instantly went to, oh my God, no, more workplace surveillance. <laughs> but he, his whole thing was like, man, if you think that you're not being surveilled at work, yeah. then you are quite naive. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I think what he's doing with Awari is, is great. Um, I would love to get a panel together with him and Mervy. Um, oh. So, um, but well, the listeners will, will hear Mervy's views on this so in the next show i think um just going back to like samuel allen and alexa i mean uh, this is going to be a controversial point but i wrote this in my forbes article on racist chatbots um you know hiring samuel l to do a voiceover for alexa is is the digital equivalent of wearing blackface um and um you know if you if you uh if, if you're if you're just trying to look cool and just look hip and and hire in actors and kind of give a kind of a, a veneer of diversity, then you're just missing the point here. You've got to be able to kind of encode the damn thing at the core with um, with the way that people actually speak across different communities and diverse communities. And that's the key, the key piece. Um, just conscious exactly. of the clock, uh, the, um, we've got a few other guests to cover quickly. Um, I mean, you had a like completely different conversations to all that. You spoke with Harriet Moore, science fiction writer, um, and I know I know from my own conversations with Harriet that you know we have a kind of quick chat that lasts two hours, um, and I think you had some technical problems. So the 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 uh, the, the podcast episode was the shortest one, but actually I think your, your conversation was the longest one. Um, what she looks at in terms of like balancing these questions of, you know, we're building these robotics, it's going to have impact in terms of the nature of employment, if not the scale of employment. And then we have to make choices like universal basic income and potentially rationing work. And as a as a science fiction writer, she's trying to like not kind of overlay too much of her own judgment onto that, but just kind of let the reader see maybe some of the potentials. And I think that's 
that's a really great perspective. But the the one thing that I thought Harriet said, which really struck out, was how um, you guys got talking about regulation and how we can kind of use regulation to design the future. And she said um, a lot of the people who who uh, criticize regulation uh, say it's going to slow down innovation, and and therefore it's a bad thing. But 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 really, is it? And you know. Does it really matter if we slow things down a little bit? And I thought that was just such a a great point, particularly from somebody who works in the innovation field and lives and breathes this stuff. So mm. what did you take away from that conversation? Yeah, that's such a good point. And I'm glad that you reminded me of that because she also, I mean, we spoke about how we're not being, we're not incentivizing the right things right now. Uh, and that's become apparent with the two incredible documentaries that have come out since this season started, right? And if anyone hasn't seen The Coded Bias, definitely check that out. If you've not seen The Social Dilemma, check that out. What's the first one? The Coded Bias. Yeah, The Coded Bias. You haven't seen that? I haven't seen that. Uh Uh-oh. Well, Uh next time we meet, we're going to have to talk (laughs) about that too. Maybe we'll try and get one of Just come by weekend, dude. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) We'll try and get one of the creators on here too to talk about that. But you, there's, it shows, I think, that we're not incentivizing the right things. We're just, and obviously, because of the way the system, uh, I don't like saying that so much, like the system, at, the greater system is set up, uh, we are out to make money. And if you're a corporation, that's what you do. You make profit and you give your shareholders a nice Christmas bonus, Mm. right? But that has come at the expense of the rest of us. And so Harriet really showed... uh, I I can't remember why I went down this path, but what what you were saying along the lines of... um, What did you mention about her? Remind me. About, about balancing innovation and regulation. That's and, it. Um, and I think it's the same point that Dr. Rob Werther made as well with you, that, you know, at the end of the day, you know, if you buy a hairdryer, I think this was the anecdote he said, if his friend is, 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 works for a company that makes hairdryers and they have a lot of standards and safety stuff mm-hmm. they have to do. Um, whereas, you know, and he's in the business of designing robots, but unless it catches fire... There's kind of like nothing he has to worry about. And, you know, just this week I saw that, you know, Zuck and uh, and Dorsey were talking about addiction and and online platforms. You know, we, maybe the 20th century, we just got so focused on physical health and physical safety that we're really worried, you know, that we can be pretty confident our machine isn't going to catch fire. My iPad, well, maybe the battery will, but, you know, the, the, the technology is safe to use from a physical perspective. But it ain't safe from a mental health perspective if it's addictive. It ain't health. It ain't safe if it's uh, if it if it changes the nature of democracy and puts us at war with each other. Um, and um, I think again, there's another great thread that ran through episodes there between Rob and um, and Harriet around that question of the balance is probably stuck. So you know, there, there is a balance between regulation and innovation, but it's in the wrong place. Um, oh, and again, just hitting driving that point home of okay if we stifle innovation with regulations 
is it going to stifle it completely or is it just going to slow things down a little bit? And what are we going to lose if it slows down a little? Yeah. And you and I both know another guest that's coming on for season two, Paul McDonald. And he's pretty, I mean, I don't want to simplify his stance, but he doesn't like regulation that much. Yeah. And so his argument is we're regulating the wrong things. You can't put a blanket regulation over everything. And I completely agree with him on that. And that's why, and it goes back to Sebastian's, that each use case is so in-depth that you need to look at each use case individually and then try to regulate around that. But there are so many different use cases that that's why it's such a difficult problem. Exactly. Exactly. And I think this is, you know, talking about regulation, there's the other aspect, which is positive um, regulation. And I think this is something which you touched on, you know, we started the show, we started the season with Emily, we should end our review with her. Um, You know, to me, you know, she's invented technology that can give people privacy uh, on their selfies, that their selfies can't be used to train machine learning models. Essentially, that's at heart what it does. And, you know, maybe it's time for that to be mandated that you know if you if you build a camera into a into a children's toy or into you know surely we could all agree on some use cases but you know for me a mobile phone um you know if you're building a camera into a mobile phone surely there should be a privacy button and if there's a if you click the privacy button then an algorithm like forks take you know uh, um, manipulates the image in such a way that's impossible for us to distinguish as humans but makes it impossible. But also, it struck me listening to her, and you were, you were asking her about, you know, are people not trying to defeat her her approach? And, um, yeah. like, the thing that kind of struck me was, like, man, like, why is there not metadata? <laughs> why is, why are we not encoding this stuff, like, consent and privacy as metadata in, in these things? And, you know, if I, I looked at an image recently and it, it kind of told me which model camera it got taken on, obviously the, the geolocation, the time of day. Yeah. It told me all sorts of things about the attributes of that file, which which is kind of useful because it can tell you, it can also tell you has it been, if it tells you like what sort of lens has been used or what sort of CCD has sensor has, has actually taken the image, then, you know, you can learn about whether the image might have been manipulated. But why isn't there like a field there that says, like a data privacy field, like do not use this image for training machine learning models. And it kind of made me really angry, the fact that, you know, it's great that what Emily's doing and there's a huge amount of research, but there's so much simpler ways of achieving it if only the industry could agree on some standards. Mm, That's such a great point. And it is very true. Like the first thing I think anyone goes to when they hear, oh, Emily's created this algorithm that beats the other algorithms, or she's created a system that beats the algorithm so it cannot properly identify you. And everyone that I talked to about this instantly said, yeah, for now, like until the algorithm or the machine learning algorithm gets smarter. And so I kind of wanted to dig into that with her. And the feeling that I got was first of all she's insanely smart and her team is working around the clock on this but the confidence that she said 
Yeah, the tech that we're using and what we're doing around this, I don't think is going... She she transmitted some confidence to me just in the way that she said, I don't think they're going to be able to do it anytime soon. Yeah. So that's good. I, but but it, yeah, more than I'll that, trust it that. should be like surely prohibited. If, if someone's applied a Fawkes filter on a picture, surely that's something we could regulate to say, you're not allowed to defeat that. There's That shouldn't be, unless national security reasons, right? that should be. Hey, dude, I, I just heard the little, that, that evil ping sound of, of the kind of the Zoom age, which says I'm late for another meeting. But um, before I, I, I run and do that, I just want to touch on like the next season. Um, so you've got, We've got Murphy talking about employee surveillance. We've got Zachary, I think, coming up, um, who wrote an amazing blog uh, uh, in response to the social dilemma. And he yeah. he is just a phenomenal mind and great thinker in terms of the history of technology and uh, and the ethical impacts of it. Um, but Robbie Stamp, who's um, Douglas Adams' former business partner and a, and a you know I would say one of the greatest sort of philosophical thinkers on on AI that I've I've ever come across. Um, you've got Jason Lewis uh, looking at this from an indigenous perspective. And I think that's going to be a great conversation. And then last yeah, but not least, you've got Dan Jeffries from Pachyderm, who I know is uh, is a real advocate for building the team structures to get this stuff right. So, I mean... Did you have fun in season one? Because uh, uh, you're definitely going to have fun in season two, I think. Yeah, yeah, man. It was it was a very good time. I am thankful to be able to do this, to talk to all these bright minds. And if you're listening right now, I really encourage you to jump into our Slack where we can keep talking. Feel free to ping either Charles and I because we love this stuff. Obviously, if you, as you can tell, and we'd love to continue talking to you about it. Yeah. So I guess that's all we got, Charles. That's it, man. I've got to run. I'm going to get back into the Slack later. But uh, yeah, it's, it's great that we've got so many people join the Slack channel. Great to have everyone's feedback. Thank you very much for listening. I've had the most fun doing this. And, uh, and Dee, you're, you're so good at this. I'm so pleased we've got you on board. So <laughs> thank you, buddy. You're kind, man. The bar is very low. And we've had a lot of you're... people who just, just listen, tune into the sound of your voice. So um... <laughs> <laughs> That's the microphone I have. And people say that they they want to change me out for their, what is it, their AMSR uh, YouTube playlist. They just put me on instead. <laughs> Uh, that's so, good. That's the fame that I've got these days. All right, man. Hope you get over the next meeting. COVID soon. And uh, yeah, love to yeah. you now. See you soon, buddy. See you. Take care. Bye.